You know, it's interesting uh, this morning as I, I grabbed the newspaper and I noticed the headlines uh, and it basically read this, Gomichi acquitted on all charges of sexual assault and choking. That was the headlines of our newspaper. Uh, and then as you read deeper into the article, okay, there we go. As you read deeper into the article, there's another headline and a page further down that this, this article basically incensed many groups who predicted it would deter women from coming forward about sexual abuse. And then on another page, it said, verdict exposes failings of justice systems. That's according to the experts. But I want to say something tonight. If there was ever a moment of great injustice, it was a moment 2,000 years ago when Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and eventually before Pilate. And we pick up the story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 55, and it says, And the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. How many know that's kind of a sad justice system when you're looking for evidence to kill somebody? And yet that's the way Mark frames it for us. He just says that. They, they were upset with Jesus. They, he had challenged the system, and now they wanted him dead. And so they were looking for a way to do it but they couldn't find any. Then it says, many testified against him, but of course they were false, and their statements did not agree. Now how many know in a court of law, that's what you're trying to do? If you're a defense attorney, is try to make people's statements not agree. And usually when that happens, the person who is being charged is set free. But not in this situation, as we're gonna see. So how and why did Jesus die? What may be even more critical is the question, why did he have to die? And for those of us who've been coming week after week and we've been exploring through this gospel of Mark, I want to advance us forward tonight. I'm fast-forwarding us to this critical moment in the life of Jesus. His message, his popularity had created, as I've already said, an insecurity in the minds of those who were ruling, the religious leaders who had collaborated with the Romans, the group called the Sanhedrin. They were both a political leadership, but they were also a religious leadership. Jesus is now standing before his accusers, and he does not defend himself. The high priest then challenges them. I'm jumping around a little bit. That's why I'm showing you the PowerPoint of the slides here. In verse 60, it says, And the high priest stood up before him and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Messiah? the son of the blessed one. Now that's a pretty powerful statement. Now see, and throughout the gospel of Mark, Mark is not telling us who Jesus is. He's actually demonstrating it for us through his activities, through his miracles, through his actions. As a matter of fact, Mark keeps raising the question, who is this man? And now he stands before the leadership of his entire nation and he's being asked by the most powerful person in his country, are you the Messiah? Are you this one who has been promised to us? Are you the son of the blessed? How many know he's basically asking, are you the son of God? And Jesus is going to answer him very powerfully. Isn't it ironic, as James Edwards points out, that in the Gospel of Mark, the two complete what we would call the Christological confessions. In other words, the confessions that Jesus is the Messiah actually from, from human beings occur in the mouths of those responsible for Jesus' death. It comes from the high priest, 
in, in chapter 14, verse 61, and the centurion at the cross in chapter 15 and verse 39. In other words, two people who contributed to his death. It's interesting how Mark puts those words in their mouths. And so we come to that core question. Jesus now answers the question, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. Now what we need to understand is what Jesus, how Jesus answered the question. He could, have, he could have said a lot of things. But when he said, I am, he's not just saying, that's true about me. What he's doing here is taking the name, the personal name of God. Because I refer back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when Moses stood before a bush and asked God who he was. And God, because he didn't want to just go and deal with the Egyptians in his own strength and power. He wanted to say, hey, if God is sending me, I need to know who you are. What, what is your name? And God answered him, I am. As a matter of fact, in John's gospel, you have seven I am's. Jesus declares himself as God in the flesh. Now, everyone in the room understood the quotation, because Jesus is actually quoting from the book of Daniel. Timothy Keller relates it this way. All the ruling council knew who the Son of Man is. Matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 7, it's found in verse 13, the Son of Man comes from the throne of God to earth in the clouds of heaven to judge the world. By his choice of text, Jesus is deliberately forcing us to see a very interesting paradox, which is simply what? Well, that there's been an enormous reversal. He is the judge over the entire world being judged by the world. And in a sense, isn't that happening every single day? That this Jesus whom many of us worship, he is being judged by our world every single day. Different, you know, thoughts are, who is he? What do we think about Jesus? Some see him as a good moral teacher. Some question if he even existed. Though I think when you do that, you deny a lot of historical reality. Others ignore him. Many reject him. But here we have Jesus' own testimony of who he is. He is the I am. And so tonight I want us to look at this drama that is the death of Jesus and how it came about. And there's really three powerful movements that I want to briefly look at tonight. And the first one is the judgment of, by men against him. The hostility, the anger, the jealousy, the sense of being threatened by Jesus is culminated in the response of the high priest who having heard him say, I am, I am. And you're gonna see the son of man coming on the clouds. He responded with such intensity, it says that he tore his clothes. By the way, in, in the ancient world, tearing your clothes was a sign of outrage and grief. And he was so upset, he tore his garments. He says, do we need any more witnesses? You've heard him. He basically said, what do you think? You've heard him blaspheme because he's telling us he's God. You've heard him blaspheme, he said. And they all condemned him as worthy of death. But notice they couldn't condemn him to death because they did not have the political authority to execute capital punishment. And that was why, as we're about to see, they brought him to Pilate. Then they began to spit at him, blindfold him, strike him with their fists and say prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Can you just think of all the anger that's being expressed here? This is an angry group of people. 
And the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, which was written 700 years before this moment, it was foretold that this was exactly what was about to happen. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Remember, he was silent before his accusers. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Very early in the morning, we read now, they took him. The chief priests, the elders, the teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin, they reached a decision. They bound Jesus and led him away and handed him over to Pilate. Now, I want you to notice the statement here, very early in the morning. So when did this Sanhedrin meeting occur? And the right answer would be at night. Now, all of the gospel writers are going to show this contrast between night and darkness. And so, how many know that the deeds of wickedness are usually done in darkness? It's done at night. And so they bring Jesus here early in the morning to Pilate. And so it says here, Pilate asked the question, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it's as you say. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Why was Pilate amazed? Because Jesus was not defending himself. How many know when you're before a, a trial lawyer, or I mean the judge, and you're being accused, most people kind of stand up for themselves, but Jesus said nothing. Now it was the custom at the feast to release the prisoner whom the people requested. And a man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. So here's a man who had fought against the Romans, who was trying to create an uprising, who was guilty of murdering people, who was now incarcerated and condemned. He was a condemned prisoner. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. And then he said, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Speaking of Jesus. Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But it says the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate released and have Pilate release Barabbas instead. So you can hear the crowd now. I can hear them now. Can you hear them shouting the name Barabbas? Here they want this guilty person to be released so that this innocent person can be crucified. Well, what shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, Pilate shouts back. What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, that's a good judicial system, you know. We could go on and on just talking about why people do the things they do. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. What's amazing about this trial is that Pilate is willing to free a condemned man in order to condemn an innocent man. Think about that. Do we see ourselves without sin? Do we realize that the wages of sin against our creator is death? Do we realize that God allows Jesus, who is innocent, to be handed over to death in order for us, the condemned, to be free? And so every time I read this story, I don't know if you see it this way, but you and I are the Barabbas in the story. We're the condemned person, condemned to die because of our sins, and yet Jesus is condemned in our place. Let me move on to the second movement and what it means
regarding the death of Jesus. Not only do we look at the judgment by men against him, but we also see the judgment by, by God himself, the Father against him. We need to understand what's happening to Jesus is more than just what human beings are doing, turning their backs on him. The hardest part of Good Friday for Jesus was the moment his father turned his back on him. That was the most difficult moment. And the Isaiah passage that I read earlier, chapter 53, which is really speaking to this time and this issue in Jesus' life. He said, surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. So now Mark moves us forward into this amazing drama. He has Jesus now crucified between two thieves. This form of punishment is actually cruel and unusual. It's designed to be this way. It's, de it's designed to deter people from criminal activity. And so what happens when they crucify you is that you are now actually choking yourself to death. You're going to asphyxiate yourself. You have to keep raising yourself up to breathe. And every time you do, the pain of being, you know, nailed to a wooden cross, the pain is, you know, and you're weakened by the loss of blood. And this can go on for days. That's what we don't realize. This is a terrible form of suffering. And here's Jesus now suffering on the cross. Then Timothy, uh, sorry, then we read here. Uh, Timothy Keller says, in their depictions of Jesus' death, Mark and the other three gospel writers show a consistent concern for what visual artists call values. That is the interplay between darkness and light. This is important. All four gospel writers take pains to show us that all the critical events of Jesus' death happened in the dark. And so we read this, Mark chapter 15, verse 32. At the sixth hour... Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, in the Jewish economy of time, the sixth hour was actually noon because the first hour starts at 6 a.m. And so here it is, high noon, and all of a sudden the land experiences this unusual darkness and it remains like that for three hours. The ninth hour is actually the time when they give one of the sacrificial animals they sacrifice the animal in the temple. So Jesus now is being sacrificed on this cross. We pick up the story in Mark 15, 34. At the ninth hour, Jesus now is about to die, and he cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, of course, the people standing by the cross recognize the statement. It comes from a psalm. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. It's speaking of being forsaken by God. And if you read Psalm 22, you get this eerie feeling that you're seeing the, the shadow of the cross in Psalm 22. Jesus is now there, forsaken by God. Timothy Keller reminds us that darkness in the middle of the day is a sign of God's judgment. When you begin to study the scriptures, that's exactly what it's about. And probably the epitome of that is expressed back in the day when the Israelites were delivered 
from Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Remember the story, the 10 plagues? And we read in Exodus chapter 10 and verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. How many have ever had a moment in your life where you've had an experience with darkness that can be felt? You know, I had that experience once in my life. I went down in, in some place in the States, I think South Dakota, and you go down into the caves, and then they turn the lights out. And I'm telling you, there's an absence of light. If you've ever seen it, most of us hardly experience that at night because there's so many stars or the moon or the community or the towns nearby, but I'm talking about a darkness that can be felt where you feel disoriented. You can't see anything. You don't even know who's around you. And this is what we're talking about. And so the Egyptians felt it. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else, so therefore no one left where they lived. They didn't leave their place for three days. And yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. The darkness is a visual picture of the forsakenness of Jesus by God the Father. It's one thing to be rejected by strangers or even acquaintances, but to be rejected by someone you love is one of the most painful experiences in life. And Timothy Keller relates in his book on Jesus the King, he shares this disorienting experience of physical darkness and tells the story of Ernest Shackleton, who was an explorer, went down to the Antarctic in 1914, and his crew got stuck in the ice, and eventually his ship started to break up, and so they had to begin to travel over, over land. And what was really amazing in the following months, Shackleton's crew fought to survive, to get home. And one of, one, of, one of his biographers said that of all the difficulties they faced, including starvation and frigid temperatures, the worst thing was the darkness. Because near the South Pole, the sun goes down in mid-May and does not arrive back until July. Few unaccustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether, and it has driven some people, some men, mad. In such deep darkness, you can't see forward, so you don't know where you're going. You have no direction. You can't even see yourself. You don't even know what you look like. You may as well have no identity, and you can't tell whether there's anyone around you, friend or foe. You are absolutely isolated. And so physical darkness can bring that kind of disorientation what do you think happens when you step into spiritual darkness? You see, spiritual darkness comes as we turn from God as our one true light and make something else the center of our lives. The Bible sometimes compares God to the sun. The sun is the source of visual truth because by it we see everything. And the sun is the source of biological life because without it nothing could live. And God, the Bible says, is the source of all truth and all life. If you orbit around God, then your life has truth and vitality. You are in the light. But if you turn away from God and orbit around anything else, anything else, then you're in trouble. You can allow career, relationship, family as the source of your warmth and your hope. And the result becomes spiritual darkness. And when you're in spiritual darkness, although you may feel your life is headed in the right direction, you're actually profoundly disoriented. Even if you achieve what you pursue, you will discover that it's not big enough for your soul. Your identity will be fragile and insecure. It will be based on human approval, achievement, and in the end, you will find yourself alone. 
The great tragedy is that when this wrong direction doesn't just end with this earthly life, we continue towards this disorientation and disfragmentation, this, this disintegration. It's interesting, you know what, Jesus talks about this. When he shared the parables, he shared a number of them, and one of them he talked about what happens when we're not ready to really connect with Almighty God. In Matthew chapter 22, he talked about the parable of the wedding guest. Remember the story? One of the wedding guests showed up. One of the people showed up without wedding garments. In other words, he didn't prepare himself for the feast. And the Bible says, but when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed there was a man there who was not wearing, not wearing wedding clothes. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the what? Into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a, that's a powerful statement. This was the direction of all humanity until Jesus came and did something to change our direction, to provide us with a wedding garment, the price he paid with death on the cross. And let me just move on to the last point here, and it's simply the forgiveness of our sins and a new living approach to God, the final movement of the drama. As Jesus died, something powerful began to happen. Just going to look at three quick verses here. With a cry, Jesus breathed his last. The last thing Jesus did. And in Luke's gospel, he said, it's finished. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And then, well, New Testament scholar James Edwards shares that the curtain has tremendously rich theological significance. As a matter of fact, there were two curtains. I didn't realize this. There was an inner curtain that separated the holiest from the holy place. And then there was an outer curtain that separated, you know, the court of the Gentiles, and the women's court. And a lot of scholars debate as to which curtain got torn. But here's what we need to realize. The tearing of the curtain there, as the book of Hebrews tells us, is actually showing us that there's an access into God's presence. Because the Bible in the Old Testament shows how difficult it is to be in God's presence. As a matter of fact, only one person could actually go into God's presence, and that only once a year, and that not without the sacrifice of some animal. And yet, the outer curtain, this is amazing, had a beautiful tapestry with a panorama of heaven. And earlier in Mark's gospel, when Jesus got baptized, you know what it says? And the heavens were opened. And in a sense, Mark is telling us right now when Jesus literally dies on the cross, something begins to happen. It's the heavens are opened. There's a new way into God's presence, a new and a living way. And it's showing us that it's through Christ's sacrificial death that you and I can have this forgiveness of sins. Now, you want to know how powerful this moment was? Look at the next verse in chapter 15, verse 39. But when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, here's the man who's in charge of crucifying these criminals. As he's standing there in front of Jesus, he hears his cry and he sees how he dies and he says, surely this man was the Son of God. Now that's a very powerful thing you have to think about. Here's a man who has been executing people. Here's a man who's probably fought in conflict. Here's a man who's seen many people die. And because of how Jesus died, he said, surely this man is the Son of God. Now, here's another thing you've got to factor in. He was loyal to one man. 
Do you know Roman soldiers actually were paid by coins? And inside that coin was a picture of Caesar. And on the other side was a message to them. And that all of these emperors, they're loyal, they, the, they, they made sure that the soldiers were loyal to them. That's how they remained in power. These people actually saw their emperor somewhat as, you know, a god. Okay? And so for this man to say that this is the son of God is a very powerful statement. As a matter of fact, Luke is showing us something very profound. James Edwards points out in the Hellenistic or the Greek culture world, the status of son of God, along with numerous other titles, was conferred as a result of superhuman distinction. In other words, people they considered to be sons of the gods were people that usually did extraordinary things. They had extraordinary strength. They did extraordinary accomplishments. And yet here in human weakness, we see this powerful confession. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion where God is depicted as a sufferer. Do you realize that? All the other religions in the world, God is depicted as all-powerful. So the question that can be asked then is, what good is that, that our God is a suffering God? And I like how Timothy Keller shares this thought. To Jesus' followers assembled around the cross, it certainly didn't seem to make any sense. But in fact, they came to realize that Jesus' suffering was of immense good to them. As we, as we have discovered. Because they would eventually see that they had been looking right at the greatest act of God's love, power, and justice in history. God came into the world and suffered and died on a cross in order to save us. It's the ultimate proof of his love for us. And when you and I suffer, and you and I may be being completely in the dark about the reason for our suffering, it may seem senseless to us that Jesus suffered just as it did to his disciples. But the cross tells you and I that, of course, it's not senseless. It can't be that. It can't, it, you, know, the, but the, you know, it tells us the reason why we suffer isn't because God doesn't love us, because we know God loves us. It can't be that he has no plan for us because we know he has a plan for us. It can't be that he has abandoned us because Jesus was abandoned by the Father for us so that God would never abandon us. And if you see Jesus losing the infinite love of his Father out of his infinite love for you, what it should actually do is melt our hardened heart that Jesus was willing to do this for us. And so I want to just leave these two burning questions as we leave tonight and reflect over this, you know, couple of hours before we arrive at Easter Sunday. The critical question is, how do you see Jesus? And how will you respond to him? Those are the two most powerful questions we have to ask ourselves in life. How do you see him? Because how you see Jesus is going to define your life. That is the most important thing we need to answer. So.